I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, we are done with Lord of the Rings and we are moving on to the Silmarillion. Today's episode is mostly going to be about just everything. Um, Yeah, we're going to be kind of wrapping up a little bit of Lord of the Rings and transitioning into reading the Silmarillion. Yeah, exactly. So next week is when we're actually back on a strict reading schedule all the way up until the release. A pretty strict reading schedule. I know, I'm really really, worried. uh, Hammering them out. I'm actually pretty worried about the Silmarillion, um, even though it's like technically the same like number of chapters, we're going to have so much more story happening. It's it's so, so much denser. Yeah. Quick note before we totally get into it. If you hear some birds, that's because we're leaving our window open. It's very hot in our house today. Um, So hopefully you'll find that a pleasant addition to the show and not wholly distracting. I think Tolkien would approve of the song of birds in the background. I hope so. But we wanted to start today off since, you know, a lot of our inspiration for, um, well, definitely for me reading these books, finally, um, but also for us doing this podcast has been the upcoming release of the Rings of Power show, which is being produced by Amazon Prime. Um, And, you know, regardless of how that show will actually be and, you know, whatever... I just wanted to make sure I knew the lore well before Mm -hmm. um, getting into that. So we're at a point in the production of that show that we're actually getting to see a lot behind the scenes. And we're finally going to talk about that a little bit on the podcast today and and going forward. Yeah, it's coming out in a few months. And, you know, as marketing is revving up, we're seeing a little bit more and more. They've been pretty secretive since they announced the show. Um, But now we're few months out and uh we're starting to see a few images and stuff released and we saw our first look really at the orcs we saw a brief glimpse of them in the trailer but very very brief during a battle and not even any facial shots did we talk about the trailer on this show i don't think so well i don't think you learn much from the trailer that's all i really have to say about the trailer is you know we we kind of get to see a bunch of flashes of things but it's more of a sizzle reel than it is like a an indication of of the kind of plot that we're going to see um it didn't offend me it also did not grab a hold of me so I'm, i'm pretty tepid on the whole situation right now yeah i know there are an awful lot of people out there upset <laughs> um i don't really see anything too egregious here or offensive to the world of tolkien i mean outside of how he would probably feel about any adaptation <laughs> yeah um uh, so i don't really know um well here's my thing is i'm i'm a huge hater i don't know if you guys have ever picked up on that um but i will find everything to complain about that I possibly can. I I love complaining about uh, works of art, especially when there's massive amounts of money behind them because I really have the highest of expectations. Yeah, well, I like to judge things that I care a lot about more intensely than things I don't care about. Right. I can turn my brain off if I don't really care about something. But if I am really into it, then I understand being more critical of it. But my thing is, I have to actually see something before I get to hate on it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really have a lot of problems when people take like a a two second scene from a sizzle trailer and expand upon it in an hour long YouTube video yeah. about how yeah, much well, it fucking sucks. We've like still that, seen that pretty much horrible. nothing. So yeah, 
nothing in that trailer really grabbed me or wowed me. Um, nothing really stood out like some of these images have that right. we've seen. It was just like, that looks fine. I'll have to see more, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, but getting on to what they just released a few days ago, um, which were some images of orcs. Uh, and they yeah. are very different orcs than what we saw in the Peter Jackson films. Yeah, they talked about how they're a little bit uh, smoother skin because they're, mm-hmm. you know, this is back before uh, generations and generations of orc uh, breeding and... Uh, sorry, I just I said orc breeding and then I zoned out and <laughs> like that. Um, but this is back further... And closer to when orcs were actually elves that had been corrupted by Morgoth. Right. So it makes more sense that they are not quite as grotesque as they later become. Like, they're yeah. still grotesque. They're still or obviously orcs. I, I know that, like, it's mud in the movies that the orcs are covered in. But, like, for some reason, the Peter Jackson orcs just, like, I bet they smell like shit. They look like they're <laughs> covered in shit. They just, like, especially that birthing scene... Oh, it's disgusting. Um, it's so disgusting. It's really and good, but it's it gross. is really good. Uh, but it it just makes it it makes me think that they're like literally made out of manure. Um, and these orcs are just more like a a, a goblin, you know, and and yeah. just a little bit more. Um, you can see that they're on a trajectory from elves all the way to the like Peter Jackson orcs. Yeah, and. Uh, the team behind this said that this is a time when the orcs are uh, thought to be extinct and they're kind of banding up to rise up. And I, I think that's a really cool concept because at the end of the first age, not all orcs were destroyed, but most of them were. So I like the idea that the elves think that evil has been completely defeated. Mm, yeah. And then it's this shock that there's this return. The biggest takeaway for me is just that they all seem practical effects, which is a big change from the hobbits. Ugh. Where, like, Azog and Bold were, like, CGI orcs. You know, I find that if I don't think about them, I I completely forget about the Hobbit movies. And and that is A-OK with me. I fucking hate those movies. I think that they are a tragedy. Other than, I I think there's good acting, you know. No, I mean, I think it was a waste of Ian McKellen and Martin Freeman. Freeman Just killer. But, yeah, those movies are, like, a CGI's fan just dream and uh, of course i i am all practical it's a, all the it's way it's a real shame i think how they turned out yeah it's a it's a bummer there's, um, a, there's a lot of good elements that kind of were squandered anyway yeah but these orcs look pretty good these, i would say <laughs> yeah these orcs are um you know a practice in stagecraft which uh i think is great i think you know getting back to and, and that was something great about the the peter jackson lord of the rings movies uh, mm-hmm. as well uh, were just how good the makeup was. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the rollout for this series has been pretty controversial for fans. I've seen near universal acclaim for these orcs. Cool. Everyone's like, yeah, this looks like how people think of Middle Earth, which I think is largely informed by the Peter Jackson yeah, movies. Yeah, of course. But, um, you know, but I think they did orcs really well. Yeah. So. I if, like that they're wearing skulls. Oh, t- yeah. That's really cool, too, that they As have helmets. like bone armor. Yeah. It's very like primitive and very fitting i think of this more ancient age yeah definitely you know this is like before they're ensnared in the machinations of sauron who's all about like at the time of the lord of the rings like industrialism and yeah like, yeah smithing so and, it makes sense they're a little more level. like natural yeah and, exactly um, and honestly some of my favorite parts that we have just read in the lord of the rings have been these chapters about the orcs and their conversations kind of behind the scenes like uh Shagrat and Gorbag. And yes. um, 
So I'm really excited to see a little bit more of the orcish culture and their existence in this world. Cool. Yeah, me too. I I love the the orc scenes in Lord of the Rings. Um, I was talking to you about this the other day of just how um, the trolls in The Hobbit are in a similar kind of vein. Um, yeah, they're very like they're more human than the humans. Yeah, humans. absolutely. Uh, they're kind of Tolkien's commentary on modern humanity. Yeah, exactly. Um, um I, I love them. I think they are uh, a real, like, touch grass moment in all of the books. You know, you're dealing with all of these princely and, you know, messiah characters. Um, mm-hmm. And then you finally get to hear these grunts who are working for the bad guy. And they're just kind of just like... Working for the man. The big bosses. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Before we kind of wrap up on Lord of the Rings, let's talk a little bit about the appendices. Yeah, which I think is fitting, having just talked about uh, the Rings of Power show, because the appendices are largely where they're drawing a lot of their source material from. I know a lot of people are very upset that they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion, where there is, you know, an okay amount of Second Age material there at the end. There's like a couple of epilogues that deal with Numenor and also the Rings of Power. But a large amount of this information is replicated here in the appendices in kind of an abbreviated form, and it's just a difference of... Uh, writing style like it's a little bit more narrative in the Silmarillion but not by much it's still a very historical account of this from a very removed space so I think what's forefront in my mind uh approaching the appendices and even just this show and reading the Silmarillion is that the Silmarillion was something that Tolkien himself never thought was going to see the light of day. He he, right. he never believed it was going to be published the way it is published now, right. where we have like multiple iterations of it and notes and, and stuff and letters about it. And um, he, he didn't think that was going to happen. So the appendices were his way, in addition to the whole of Lord of the Rings, which itself is a compromise of the Silmarillion information right. into a more narrative fun fairy tale yeah well like we kind of said uh way earlier in this podcast series that lord of the rings is kind of a a sequel to the silmarillion disguised as a sequel to the hobbit yeah absolutely um, uh, <laughs> he was like you want more hobbits here you go but also here's a ton of lore yeah and like i might not ever get this published but here's all this and he really fought to get the appendices published with the book yeah like it was kind of an uphill battle like the Silmarillion, and I think this was his last-ditch effort yeah. to get all that lore squeezed in here. Totally. Because otherwise, there's these moments in the book where they mention things, but it's like, I don't know what that's about. Right. They mentioned Feanor once or twice, and without the Silmarillion, uh, you kind of have to rely on the appendices to kind of give you, why is that such an important name? Yeah, I will say, the appendices are exactly what I expected from Tolkien's writing, uh, before I actually read Lord of the Rings, where it's like super dense, super like nearing biblical levels of just kind of like, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and yeah. this, this was the king who was after that. And there's like all this repetition of mm-hmm. names and, and um, you know, the importance of different familial lines. And so for a while there, all I had really like gleaned from <laughs> the information I was reading was, Fanor was the hottest elf who ever lived. <laughs> uh, he was the hottest elf, and he was awesome. And well, I can't wait for you to keep on. reading and get the Silmarillion. <laughs> as as much as I don't know everything about the Silmarillion, I do know mm-hmm. that I love Fanor and I love his 
Ah, zest for life let's call yeah. it that yeah but anyway these appendices are you know the lord of the rings is as we re- just read it's kind of this meta book that has been compiled by these hobbits the writing and compilation of this book is even discussed within the story yeah and the appendices are kind of an add-on to that these are accounts compiled by fardo and sam and mary and pippin mm-hmm. and uh gimli i think as well and so we get a lot of insight into these other parts of the book that uh, didn't quite fit into the story. You know, we might have get, gotten mentions of these names or these historical events, but now we're kind of getting the full layout of the histories that are relevant right. here. And I think a lot of people, when they read Lord of the Rings, they don't uh, quite dive into the appendices as much as they should. Why would they? Like, I, okay, here's my thing. Having read them... Do I feel like I've received supplemental knowledge? Absolutely. But <laughs> this is my biggest problem with the appendices and their existence. And, and and I understand why, as a writer, Tolkien wanted this. But I'm also just like, couldn't you have put it, like, put the important things just a little bit more well, yeah, but, I mean, into the, the structure like of your narrative? The history of the Rohirrim and stuff, like, you can't fit all of that into the novel. But I think that adds some great context to it. Yeah. No, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's more just like, I, I can't blame other readers who kind of hit the appendices and they're just like, fuck this. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, this is dense history of a world that doesn't exist. So like, you know, it, just, it's hard to feel the applicability. Yeah. Well, for me, the thing is that the story is called The Lord of the Rings, which is Sauron. Yeah who is an immortal being that has been around since the beginning of time. You know, the War of the Ring didn't just begin in the year that the the Lord of the Rings no, takes place right. during. Um, it began, you know, thousands of years before with all, all of these events all moving forward. So I see it all as relevant information to the story. Yeah, and but you're a nerd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so? Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. And I think, you know... I just, my, my point that I just want to make is I see the appendices as just as relevant to the overall Lord of the Rings as the main story, which is what I think a lot of people, when they think of the Lord of the Rings, they think of just the story. The story. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think it's all of it. It's the appendices plus uh, the tale of Frodo and Sam. I mean, and... I would honestly agree with that, which is why I'm frustrated by the presentation of it. A lot of this could have been told in flashbacks in uh even in footnotes you know i've read i've read fictional Mm, fantasy books that that use like tons of footnotes but it's like honestly it's been helpful to be creating this podcast with you while reading them because every time we've come up against something that is referenced in the appendices you've always said well the way this goes in like the fuller history blah 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 i actually think in a lot of ways a fit a footnote system would have for me at least personally translated the appendices information into the the text a little more where it's like in the moment i can like look at what I, what's happening in the story see these characters and then like understand where they're coming from, you know, Mm -hmm. with a little footnote that I can kind of opt in or opt out of, but it's there in the present moment. I think that would be great (laughs) if you only intend to read the Lord of the Rings once, which is I think where you're at. That's, that's the next thing I was going to say is that I think that in order to love, 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 love these books and like 
feel the way that you feel about them i do think you need to read them multiple times absolutely yeah and to see these different accounts and how they all fit together right and um for me that's the joy of it all which is like i think that's lovely for you i think no, I, I don't think it's like new reader friendly at all no <laughs> like, it's like really i, I think no it's, not at all so to dive a little bit more into some of these specific appendices it starts off giving the lineage of the Numenorians and the Numenorian kingdoms in Middle-earth, which are Arnor and Gondor, um, which is pretty relevant history to um, the overall story, especially yeah. with, I think this ties the most with Aragorn. These are all yeah. his ancestors, pretty much, and the history of his people, like the Dúnedain. I think it's great. I really like the history of the kingdom of Arnor and the wars with the Witch King. Uh, that's always been one of my favorite parts. The history of Gondor, I've never quite been as attached to all the stuff about the kin strife what i think is the best part of all that is the account of the northern king he comes south to gondor when there's a moment where they don't have a king to try to claim the kingship and they reject his claim right because he's of the northern line of a door and not the southern line of a door's brother yeah. anarion and i think that's pretty cool because that really ties in with aragorn being of the northern line sure. of the people of arnor coming south to claim the throne and Denethor possibly rejecting that claim. Yeah. Um, I think that's like, provides some pretty cool backstory. Like there's a legal precedent for why Aragorn can't just roll up and be like, I'm the king. Right. We get a little backstory on the Rohirrim as well. I dug the shit out of that. That was yeah. really cool. The whole story of Aorl's father being killed by the horse and then Aorl binding that same horse into his service and like, this horse understands everything that he says. And it's, I just love that. I, I think um, when Tolkien writes about uh, the connection between animals and the peoples yeah. of his land, uh, whether that's, you know, the Rohirrim and horses mm -hmm. or the dwarves and birds, I just think it's so magical. I love yeah. that. It's a, a huge. And well, I think this is me. also the ancestor of Shadowfax. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah Shadowfax is, is like, the most recent horse who has embodied that original, mm -hmm. like, wild fervor and power. Yeah. I also really like the tale of King Helm Hammerhand. He is the King of Rohan that Helm's Deep was named after. And this is actually what the anime movie The War of the Rohirrim is going to be based around, is uh, King Helm, voiced by uh, the actor Brian Cox. And it's going to be narrated by Miranda Otto, who played Eowyn in Lord of the cool. Rings. But yeah, basically Rohan's invaded and his people retreat to Helm's Deep. And there's this civil war kind of with the, Dunland the Dunlandings. And King Helm protects his people by going out during this deadly winter and retrieving food from enemy camps and killing the people in, in the camps with his bare hands. Because there's this legend that if you wear no weapon, no weapon can harm you. And he's already been known for uh, killing the leader of the Dunlendings with his bare hands. He hits him really hard and it kills him. <laughs> so uh, that's how he got the name Hammerhand. And then he goes on to kill a bunch of people with his hands. So I think that sounds pretty fucking metal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like, you know, as we've talked about, the people of uh, Rohan are like Viking people. Yeah. They're this pretty hardcore badass group of people. And I think the story of Helm's pretty... Uh, pretty damn cool so i'm glad they're making a movie about that yeah i i dig the rohirrim a lot uh the gondorians are pretty shitty in the the appendices like worried about mixing with the rohirrim worried about mixing with the people of arnor they're just very like mm. yeah kind of like blood purity stuff yeah. going on 
And one thing I thought was interesting is they talk a lot about the dwindling of the Numenorians, like their lifespan and age, mm-hmm. and how the people of Gondor blamed it on this uh, mingling of the blood. But Tolkien makes a point that I never picked up on before, yeah. where he says that was happening anyway. Yeah, it by the nature <laughs> of after the Numenorians, Numenor fell, and they had to come to Middle Earth. The nature of Middle Earth is kind of being this state of fading yeah. and decay. Everything is fading in Middle Earth, and so. You know, it's just the uh, the lifespan of the Numenorians being withdrawn over years after the uh, fall of the island. It was just a natural thing that was happening anyway. And right. that the mingling of their blood had absolutely nothing to do yeah. with it. So I thought that was a really interesting point, given how much of Tolkien's world is about lineages and blood <laughs> blood passing down yeah. straits of ancestors. <laughs> yeah. uh, that he's like, actually, you know, the Rohirrim actually probably lent strength to their bloodline. Yeah. Oh my gosh, um, how could they not? And we're seeing that their alliance is an obvious good in Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. We also get a little bit about uh, the dwarven people and um, their troubles in exile from both the Balrog and Azog and uh, Smaug the dragon mm-hmm. and provides a little bit of context to the Hobbit. Yeah, um, very cool. Like we kind of get to see the snapshot of what's happening for the dwarves right before the Hobbit. Um, and how even... Gandalf's meeting with Thorin <laughs> yeah. like precipitates all of this. Um, yeah, so I think I think the Dwarven stuff is very worthwhile um, to read. Another interesting thing that's mentioned in the section about Dwarves is just how much Sauron hated the Dwarves um, because they were so, like, wholly unaffected by the rings the way that other people uh, were, you know? Yeah. It's not that it didn't have an effect on them, it just wasn't... Um, it sounds more like dragon sickness than anything else. You yeah, know? it just made them a little more greedy, uh, which is like kind of why delving deep in Moria for Mithril and then Thorin's ancestors want to build up this hoard of wealth in Erebor. Right. Um, which attracts the attention of Smaug. So there is evil that comes to them because of that ring of power, but they're not able to be turned into wraiths. Right, which is really cool. And, and they, they cannot be possessed by anyone other than themselves, no. sort of. So I, I, which, I think... As we're about to read in the Silmarillion, earlier, early in the Silmarillion, this is discussed, uh, the dwarves creator, Aule, who's one of the Valar, was also the master of Sauron at one point. So I think it's interesting that these other children of Aule are like, they're like, yeah, we know all these tricks. Like, right. we are not going to fall for the the magic that you've imbued in these rings. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, it is important to keep in mind at every turn of any of the stories that include dwarves is that as opposed to everyone else in the realm of Middle-earth, they were created by Aule and not Iluvatar. Yeah. Um, and Who that... is like in all things pretty much the Christian God. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this was one of, you know, God's like angels that created his own people. Right. And and so I, I think they are very unique. We don't get nearly as much about them as I would like love to Yeah, the whole point see. of the dwarves is how secretive they are as a yeah, people. So they're um, just kind of alien to elves and men. Exactly. And, and and I think um that's just really cool given that they are created by a they have a completely different creator yeah yeah this appendix goes a lot into like the history of dwarves and their relationship with orcs and the wars that they've had over the years and that provides like i said a lot of backstory to the hobbit but it also goes a little bit beyond into the war of the ring and this is also talked a little bit about in the tale of the years section while sauron was sending out his armies to the pelinor fields uh in the south 
he was also simultaneously striking Lothlorien and Erebor. Yeah. And Thorin's cousin Dine, who becomes king at the end of The Hobbit, he's still alive. He's a very old dwarf at this point. And Bard's grandson is now the king of Dale, Mm -hmm. Brand. And Erebor was besieged, and Bran dies during this battle, and Dine dies defending Bran's body. So we've come a long way from Thorin really rejecting Bard uh, at the gates of Erebor, and kind of the rivalry between his greed and the people of Lake Town being like, we're owed this stuff. And Thorin's cousin Dine now dying to defend uh, the King of Dale. I've always really appreciated that part and how Gandalf mentions that, like, when you think of, like, the War of the Ring, don't forget the right. dwarves of Erebor. Right. There were more sacrifices than what we just saw, you know, yeah. present So I've always liked that tie back into the Hobbit and, like, yeah. what whatever did happen to the people of Dale yeah. and, like, <laughs> Bard's lineage. And uh, I think that's a really cool little note. But I think one of the most important appendix here is the tale of Aragorn and Arwen. Um, 100%. I would say this, the other stuff... I understand. This is the one that I'm just like, Yeah. some of this could have been in the story of the Lord of the Rings. Because Aragorn and Arwen are so mysterious in the main text. And it's like, what's their deal? It's just like, <laughs> you know? wait, like, are they like, is this an arranged marriage? Like, this is just like, uh, what, yeah. prophesied? You know, you don't really understand yeah. like, why he's just like, always going to marry her and yeah, whatever. And well, I mean, even just beyond their relationship, to me, outside of like the hobbits like Frodo and Sam, Aragorn is the main character here. He's not, he's like exclusively not a point of view character. Yeah. We see so many people's point of view. We see Legolas and Gimli. We see all four of the hobbits. But people like Gandalf and Aragorn are a little beyond. And so I like this tale because it really gets, Aragorn is the the protagonist of this tale. It goes from his birth to his death. So I really appreciate Aragorn, I think, getting the limelight that he deserves. Yeah. Being that this is really the sequel to the Silmarillion, and Aragorn is the descendant of all the characters of the Silmarillion. Right. Um, um, and I, I know this is sort of like, you definitely mentioned a lot of Aragorn's life while we were reading uh, the story. Again, yeah. because I think it is the most like easily insertable into yeah. what's going on, and really helps you to understand who he is um, mm-hmm. beyond, like, Strider. Well, his relationship, I think, with Elrond. Definitely. Arwen, Gandalf, uh, and Denethor. Yeah. I think are the most, like, fleshed out here. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the stuff you might read in the book, you're, like, left scratching your head a little bit. Like, why does this character feel this way about, especially, I think, Denethor. Right. But this provides so much more context. Yeah, and, and we learned that Aragorn uh, grew up with Elrond as a father figure, basically. And yeah. um, he is, like, a, an uncle, um, yeah, he's his great uncle. A lot of greats. <laughs> yeah, but, great, great, um, great, great, great uncle. But like, yeah, yeah, he 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 was pretty much his father. Was his father, and um, which is kind of different from the way the movies present it, where Elrond really just seems like a girlfriend's dad with like cleaning his <laughs> shotgun. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent, and not actually like, oh, he also raised you as his father. Totally, um, and and all of that is presented very differently in the books. I think in these appendices, we learned that he was raised as Estelle in. Rivendell and kind of 
was just a happy little half elf. Didn't know anything about his lineage really until he was like 20 years old. Yeah. And then Elrond kind of takes him aside and he's like, yeah, you're basically the king of. You're the heir of Numenor. Yeah. You're, you're a pretty powerful dude if you can like live up to it. So that's your whole challenge. And then around that same time after he's like high on this, like, wow, I am a princess, you know, kind (laughs) of vibe. Like, um, he's walking around Rivendell and the the forests and and singing the songs of of uh luthien and he happens across this beautiful elf who is so glorious that he for a second thinks that he's just kind of hallucinating from the magic of the music that he's singing then he he worries that she'll disappear if he doesn't interact with her so he calls out tenuviel tenuviel and she's like why are you why are you calling me that that's not my that's not my name. Um, and he's She's like, like that's like my great, great grandmother's name. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, like, uh, and he's like, you look like her. And she's like, I- I've been told that before. <laughs> um, and they fall in love. You know, he's just pretty like instantly. pretty instantly. Um, he's like 20 years old at the time. And she she's is a lot not. Older. She's super old. But, you know, elves. She's relatively young compared to the elves we see in this story. Sure. You know, she's, uh, you know, a lot younger, but... Um, yeah, she's the youngest of them, you know? Like, yeah. she's the daughter of Elrond, so she's not super old. And next to, like, even Galadriel, El- Elrond is very young. Yeah. Um, so... But they definitely, you know, have an attraction, and I just... I love... I think something Tolkien does really well that I'm just, like, a big fan of is that, like, when people fall in love in his writing, they, like get really sullen <laughs> at first they get really quiet like we see this with eowyn when she falls in love with aragorn she like well, they just like, re- stops they, talking. they realize the implications of everything that this love means <laughs> yeah. like yeah and like, the, like the potential to be hurt is high yeah um, and just like you know like will i ever live to live up to my honor or like my goals and also be able to achieve this love and i just love that you know his mother is like i just think it's really funny that he's like noticeably solemn and somber well it's just like mom i met a girl today (laughs) he realizes that he ain't shit his mom's basically like she's of a lot higher of a line than you in the sense that she's an elf and like that's not for you to marry her father chose to be immortal and our ancestor elrond's brother chose to be mortal right that's our lot in life so like you good luck with that dude (laughs) good luck with getting elrond to agree to that Um, and uh elrond is i would say a lot more open to it in the book than he is in the movies in the movies he's so like grumpy and maybe that's just uh because it's uh hugo weaving but like (laughs) his intense eyebrows and forehead yeah yeah no yeah he does allow for the fact that maybe by my loss will the kingship of men be restored but he's like but no less than the kingship of gondor and arnor yeah and the full glory of numenor restored once arwen kind of declares her intent towards aragorn um and and makes it clear that his love is returned elrond kind of sets out this very barren and luthien uh task that is already supposedly aragorn's big quest of his life um and and what he's supposed to do but so i I really find the movie version of aragorn funny where he's like i don't want the throne oh what a joke Um, 
he wants the throne because the throne gets him the love of yeah, his life. I think exactly. we need to look at Aragorn as the ultimate romantic hero. Yeah. Everything he's doing is so he can marry the woman he loves. Which, like, knowing that... I mean, I love Strider. I love Aragorn as a character in The Lord of the Rings already. I, I think he's awesome. Um, but for me as a reader, I would just adore understanding a little bit more of his motivation. And while I think that gives a lot of context to his motivation to becoming king and all this stuff, I think it also makes these moments really great when he's willing to throw it all away. Yeah. When he, like, um, when they're at Parth Galen and deciding should we go east to Mordor or go to Bor- with Bormir to Minas yeah. he's like, I was going to go with Bormir to Minas and Gandalf was probably going to go with him on, but, like, what to do now and he's like i can't abandon frodo i have to go yeah and he's probably walking into certain death if he did that uh he was willing to throw away what he's prepped 60 years for which is to marry the love of his life yeah and it's also sort of like as soon as he does achieve everything that he's ever dreamed of um he immediately they immediately (laughs) march to mordor just to buy frodo more time and um yeah just knowing the backstory to like why he's doing what he's doing and that he's also in this moment willing to just uh sacrifice it all for Frodo. Right. I think really fleshes Aragorn out in a way that the main text just doesn't. No, um, yeah, I think of all of the appendices, this is just the most absolutely frustrating for me that it wasn't a little more integrated, especially since we get these moments where it's referenced, you know, when mm-hmm. when um Aragorn's in Lothlorien with the rest of the fellowship, he is like in like, days. he's lost he's in like, his own memories. Just like memory, like he's just remembering. Pretty much getting engaged there. to Arwen. Yeah, um, and and they're like, "What's what's up with you, dude? Are you you good?" And he's just like, "Oh, I'm so good." Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I wish, and just all the stuff with Eowyn. He's like, uh, "Sorry, I can't return your love." And it, um, yeah, exactly. It's like what a perfect moment. That moment in Lothlorien, where he could literally just be like, "Oh, let me tell you a tale." Yeah, like, while, yeah, like that's true. While they're there and while there are these moments where there's info dumps. Um, I mean, anytime that Arwen's mentioned is a moment that like could like we could get a little more information about their relationship. And I just get frustrated. This is definitely the most like present part of the appendices mm-hmm. where it's it's literally happening. So interwoven. There are so many moments in the text where a character comes up and they're like, let me tell you the long story of what I know, you know, that happens plenty, especially in Rivendell. And it's frustrating to me that, that this. The Lothlorien chapters would have been a great place to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Especially given that Galadriel is Arwen's grandmother. And and, and Galadriel um, has a lot to do with them getting together. She's like a little bit of a matchmaker. If Elrond is resistant to them getting together, Galadriel's (laughs) like trying to get them together. Yeah, she like Um, takes in. Aragorn dresses him in fine clothing and is sort of like, Oh, she's just playing wingman (laughs) to Aragorn. Um, It's great. It's very cute. But what I also like about it is that it goes beyond the events of The Lord of the Rings into the, um, even the death of Aragorn and Arwen. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, mortality is such a major theme in Tolkien's (laughs) work, specifically uh, the Silmarillion and like uh, the events of the Second Age and... So the fact that Arwen chooses immortality and then how she gets to receive this with the death of her husband when his time comes. I know this is like a super serious point in their their trajectory, um, but he's basically on his deathbed. He's like, I'm dying. And she is like, as an elf, 
kind of just not with the whole mortality thing. She just doesn't get it. And she's like, stay. <laughs> like, don't well, die Well, I mean, now. that's what she wants. And what, um, I, what I love is that she's like, I always thought men to be kind of stupid and ignorant. <laughs> yeah. And like, but now that I like see what see what is. mortality truly yeah. means and like actually i'm playing a part in this as someone who loves you she's like this is bitter the, the elves call this a gift this is terrible for the one i love to go and yeah, leave me here in abs- middle earth absolutely it's so sad um, and she she shuts down after he dies she becomes cold and i just want to give a shout out to aragorn's last words before he dies which i think are some of the most beautiful in tolkien's entire legendarium In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of this world, and beyond them is more than memory. Hmm. I think that's pretty beautiful, given that the gift of men is that they do get to leave this world and go presumably be in Iluvatar's presence. Yeah. And the idea that they will be reunited one day. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, they got 120 years together, right? Six, Something like that. I mean, Aragorn was pretty long-lived, you know... The, the lessening of their life continued throughout the years, but Aragorn yeah. kind of reversed a little bit of that. He went on to actually have the longer life of his ancestors. Right. And, um, but of course, you know, for an elf, that's like nothing. Yeah. And so Arwen eventually kind of dies of grief uh, in Lothlorien, at, which at this point, Galadriel and Celeborn are gone and it's no elves dwell there anymore. Yeah. It's just kind of this sad, lonely place. And, and she's a sad, lonely elf. And she dies. But um, yeah, I think you're supposed to be left, though, with this relief that they will be reunited beyond the circle yeah. of the world. She'll never meet her father again. And honestly, Elrond might in time forget about her, which is very sad. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. To me, that's like, I, I, I don't think anyone had it a lot rougher um, than Elrond. His brother became mortal and chose that fate. His daughter uh, the same. Uh, his father is a star that can never again return to Middle Earth. <laughs> um, Shit. His mother became like a bird and flew away. And um, yeah, he, he at least he gets to go and be reunited with his wife when he sails away yeah. to Valinor. So at least he has that. Yeah, it's a sad tale, but like a lot of Tolkien's works, the sadness and the bliss kind of meld together. I do want to talk a little bit about the... Uh, the tale of the years specifically after the war of the ring and everything that happens with the hobbits uh especially after frodo sails away basically sam is elected mayor year after year after year after year of the shire or of uh hobbiting maybe um i love that and yeah so he's just like people were like yep he's like the best mayor we ever had he did a great forestry project and uh the shire is beautiful now well, Sam's so perfect. And he's just, he's, he's like the perfect hobbit. Yeah. Pippin is the Thane of the Shire. So he's kind of like, if, if Sam is like the mayor of Hobbiton or whatever, uh, Pippin kind of rules the larger Shire. And the Thane is a title that used to exist when the King of Arnor was around. Mm. And the, the hobbits kind of paid homage to the king. Mm-hmm. And so Pippin now is that role to King Elisar, yeah. Aragorn. And he's also a former knight of Gondor. And Mary becomes the master of Buckland, which is a kind of a separate colony of the Shire. Uh, so between the three of them, they are kind of like the three main representatives of the Shire. Yeah. And it said that they sit in on some of Aragorn's councils and they meet up with him over the years, but he will never set foot in the Shire because he's outlawed men from going in there after the scouring of the Shire. Which I think is awesome. You and know, he holds himself to that role. This like 
holding sacred of of the Shire. And while I think it's just a continuation of what they've been doing over the years, the reason the Shire has been preserved is because the rangers, the Dunedain, have been protecting the borders. Right. So now that the kingdom of Arnor is restored, they're just really doing that openly now. Yeah. Years later, uh, Sam, uh, as an elderly hobbit, Rose eventually dies. And Sam passes off the Red Book to his daughter, Eleanor. And he uh, sails away to Valinor. He's granted the grace to go to the Undying Lands, being a former ring bearer himself for mm-hmm. that brief moment. And um, he gets to finally have some sort of that Arthurian peace ending that Frodo had, uh, like sailing away to Avalon. After that, what happens is Eomer, being now in a very old king, of Rohan, given that he also came into the kingship very young, he was the longest ruling king of Rohan. He was now like almost on his deathbed. And he requested that Mary, a former knight of Gondor, come down. And with Sam being gone now, Pippin and Mary are very old. They decide to take a trip down to Rohan. And they stay with Eomer until he dies. And then being so close to Rohan and now being pretty old of age, Mary and Pippin then go to live in Gondor with Aragorn. It's only after they die that Aragorn kind of lays himself down to die. And when he is entombed, Merry and Pippin are laid next to him. With that, Legolas and Gimli then finally sail away to Valinor, and that's the very end of the Fellowship, which is also a very rare thing for a dwarf no, well, to go there. That's what I was going to say, is that even before they, they sail off to Valinor, Legolas settles in... He settles in Athelion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're nearby to each mm-hmm. other. Um, and, then and like we he... mentioned, Gimli is the lord of the glittering caves yes. near Helm's Deep and yeah. friends with Aragorn and Aemir. And so when he eventually sails the sea across to Valinor, he takes Gimli with him, which it's unheard of for a dwarf to leave the lands of Middle Earth. Um, yeah. And like I said, I think Gimli more than any other dwarf we see in all these works is the closest to Aule himself. Yeah. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that. Gimli is the one to go to Valinor and potentially maybe even meet Aule, which cool. I think would have been awesome. Yeah, that would um, be really cool. Given how he's just like, I can't walk by uh, the lake of Kelad Zaram without looking on the Stone of Durin. Um, he, like we've talked about, Gimli is so into dwarven culture. So to yeah. meet the maker of his race, the divine being, I think would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's like really sad, actually, that of all the members of the Fellowship... Aragorn, Merry, and Pippin are the only one laid to rest in Middle-earth. Gandalf, Frodo, and Sam sail away. Legolas and Gimli sail away. And Boromir's body was sailed out to sea. Aragorn, Merry, and Pippin really accept sort of the the doom of men in why, Gondor. Why do you find that sad? Because to me, that's like very fitting. I feel like Merry and Pippin never... Frodo, Frodo is kind of like on a different level than all of the other hobbits. And then Sam, by extension, and his connection through Frodo... Yeah is on a different level. Um, and then Merry and Pippin are just so earthly. They're so... No, yeah. No, I am I may have said that wrongly. Um, like, I think it's fitting, definitely. Okay, okay. I just think it's... I mean, it's sad in this very real sense that the Fellowship is ended. You just want all the fellows together. Like, yeah. or at least, like, you know, even if they're dead, for them to all be in Valinor or something. You know, I, I just think something about the separation of their graves is very... <laughs> That's so sentimental. I, I see Yeah, saying, it's just yeah. like, you know, Sam was maybe buried next to Frodo in uh, Tolerasea. Don't even talk and, about it. And, um... <laughs> I can't even handle but it. But Merry and Pippin and Aragorn are, like, on the other side. They're, like, yeah, in a totally yeah. different area. I don't know. There's something just very yeah. solemn about that, that 
how much this whole group wants sure. to be together. But I do love that Mary and Pippin are laid next to Aragorn. Yeah. Um, the king of the Western lands, including Rohan, and these are a knight of Rohan and Gondor. Yeah. Um, I just love that, very similar to The Hobbit, you know, the, this really is a story about how these very unknown people and kind of unexplored people burst out into the world apropos of nothing and rock it you know become these heroic really uh, like figures of legend yeah and and really inform i i feel like the hobbits always give the other characters uh the men and the elves a lot of pause and make them rethink their like presumptions and and biases about the world and how to go about things you know i, I mm-hmm. it's it's pointed out so many times of just like the hobbits like on the edge of battle being like ah it's time to eat you know and yeah. and there's something so earthly about the hobbits where they are sort of so locked in their own ways of just like i'm here to live and i i really can't let much you know stop me from having my many meals a day and yeah, yeah. and like they just go good they just go on in the face of the apocalypse or not yeah um, exactly and I, I think you know that definitely holds a lot of inspiration for the the men dwarves and elves who interact with them yeah totally but that kind of brings us to the end of the important parts of the appendices yeah there's some like linguistic type stuff oh, later God, there's i mean tons of stuff. as far as story goes i think this really kind of uh covers most of that yeah um, and and you know there's tons of stuff you could analyze it forever um yeah. it's very like i said at the beginning very biblical so um you could really go deep into like the genealogy and all of that kind totally. of stuff the legacies but and we're um, about to get into more of that anyway with the silmarillion yeah so now that we've completed the hobbit the Lord of the Rings, William, as the resident Silmarillion expert, what can I do and what can potential first-time readers do to prep themselves for taking on this this big book? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is resetting your expectations. <laughs> um, Not like lowering expectations, <laughs> just like changing what you might be thinking you know so far the hobbit and the lord of the rings are these epic quests that take place typically around the course of a year follow a protagonist or two pretty classic just this this tale the silmarillion is more a a history of different cultures of people over the course of an untold amount of time going back to literally the beginning of time and beyond that and because of that, I think the only other book I can kind of compare it to is the Bible, and that it's sort of this collection of stories with this very uh, broader theological message of you know good over evil, and obviously all these other things we talked about, like never despairing and mercy and pity. So really making sure you know you're not getting into like a typical novel with like one quest, and that it's a collection of stories. Like you know, there's Genesis and Exodus, and you know the tale of David and Goliath, and you know all these different heroes like Noah and the Ark. But they're all part of this larger struggle between good versus evil. It's written more as a history than a just typical novel. So going into it. So it'll be out. a little bit more like the appendices. Right. Yeah. Than, than the main text of yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, this is the world that Tolkien was creating his whole life even before the Lord of the Rings. And it was born out of his love of language and creating these mystical ancient languages and then he created this world around them yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about a lot of the challenges that readers face when they first start 
to read the Silmarillion. I think one of the big ones is names. There's so many names. Because Tolkien, like I said, he was approaching it as a linguist first and foremost. <laughs> right, so he like created a bunch of names and then had to like write stories for them. Yeah, and so almost every single person and place has multiple names, depending on the languages. This is something we've already seen in Lord of the Rings. And he uses them interchangeably, and you kind of need to learn that, oh, when he says this and this, these aren't separate things. These are, like, the same thing in different cultures. It just depends on who's talking about it. And so with all this, like, whirlwind of names and stuff, there's also the fact that there's no one protagonist of this story. This is more the story of a people. Or multiple groups of people you know it's like the main characters are i would say three main cultures there's the noldor elves the sindar elves and the edain which are the three houses of ancient men that become the numenorians and we know eventually descend down to aragorn and so those are kind of like your main cultures that we're following here but there's a lot of like especially earlier on talking about migration patterns and how their languages deviate And also there's just the fact that the story starts from a very removed place. It starts back at the beginning of time from the point of view of the gods of this universe. And as the story continues, I would say the story gets more and more, the story gets less and less removed in a sense, because then the elves come into the story. And then this is the basis for like the forging of the Silmarils and their theft and the beginning of the war of the Silmarils, which is the bulk of the book. And then they leave and go back to Middle-earth, and then men come into the story. And this, to me, is when the story really starts to get rolling. You know, like, the Lord of the Rings movies start with this um, prologue that talks about basically the Second Age and the forging of the Rings of Power. I almost feel like you could start the Silmarillion with when men come into the story, and then all the stuff with Feanor and the Noldor elves could be that prologue. Because now men are very relatable to us as the reader. We are men. Yeah. Um, So... Uh, this is when the story becomes less mythological and more just like in the vein of like an epic. I really like the structure where, again, it's getting closer and closer and closer to what's actually happening. And the the pacing of the story gets faster and faster to the point of by the end of the story, uh, it's more about the half-elven. Now that the elves and men have united, there have been a couple of marriages and their children are kind of the protagonists of the later part of the book and bring it to its conclusion. Then everything's happening at a pretty breakneck speed. And uh, I was really surprised the first time I read it. It kind of ended before I thought it would, (laughs) very abruptly, Um, but very epically. Like, the epicness just keeps rolling and compounding in on itself. And I just think the structure of the book's pretty brilliant. But, again, you got to start off at this very removed point, way back before the beginning of time. And so to get to these later ages, it's just a lot to work through. And also he's writing it in this very archaic historical language. Do you recommend any sort of like note taking or any like how did you make it through these books? The maps and the genealogy charts are your friends. My first read through the Silmarillion was really slow because I had to, well, my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and probably sixth reading of the Silmarillion (laughs) probably ended within the first third of the book. Yeah. Um, My first full reading of it, uh, I was definitely going back, checking the maps, the index, which describes, you know, it has all the names and and the genealogy charts that tell you all the family, uh, how all the the families are laid out, because ultimately it's an epic family drama. I was just going back and forth between the main text and that stuff at the end, and it was really slow going. 
But after a while, you start to kind of get an understanding of, all right, these are the main characters I need to focus on. There's a lot of extra information that I think is great for rereads. But when you first read through it, you can't really tell what's important and what's not. So I think knowing ahead of time which characters to focus on and which ones you can kind of let fall to the side for a little later reading um, can maybe help you. So with that, there's also just a lot of characters throughout this. Um, and mainly the Noldor elves are who you need to follow in their royal house. And the house of Finway is probably the most important house to learn. There's like, it's later differentiated into three houses of Finway's three sons, Feanor, Fingolfin, and Finarfin. But a large part of the Silmarillion is about their children, mm-hmm. who are all like uh, cousins of these three different houses. Can I ask you, what was the difference between those like six first attempts at reading the Silmarillion and finally doing a full reading? Well, I think one of them was I tried to read it way too young. Um, I was just overly ambitious. I probably got my first copy of the Silmarillion from a relative when I was like 12 or something. And at the time I was like, you know, reading The Hobbit and trying to read The Lord of the Rings. And it's just was a little too beyond me at that point. And I think like reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings first really helped me like get into that world after that, I still had this eagerness to dive deeper. So that's why I kind of suggested we do this podcast in the order we've done it. Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, then go back for the Silmarillion, because that's how I read it. I don't know if that's the best way. I think it could work for other people to like read it chronologically and read the Silmarillion first. Well, only if you're like able to take in sort of this like archival information before you actually get connected and emotionally to the characters into and, a narrative. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the Silmarillion, the connections that I made was like, oh, these are all Aragorn's ancestors. Yeah. Um, That this is the, you know, Aragorn is the conclusion to this story. Right. Um, And knowing that that's where it ends up is, I think, pretty cool and adds some really great context to it. How old were you when you did your full read through? I think I was in college. Yeah. And it Um, just was the time. Something about it clicked, you know, in a way that it hadn't really before. And I was like, okay, I kind of, I understand the story a little bit more. How many times have you read it since then? I don't know the answer to that. Um, Like ballpark. Actually sitting down and reading it through all the way, I'd say at least five times. But Um, like, how often do you reference it every day? It's literally every day. At least once a week. You know, pick up the Silmarillion constantly. Read a chapter or something. Great. So are there any other tips more than what you've already said i will say i've found a lot of entertainment and actual like worth in reading um through the subreddit silmarillion memes <laughs> uh yeah it's pretty i funny. actually think that memes can be a really cool way to absorb information especially if it's like something you have no other reference for i just think some of the people on that reddit are really brilliant at framing certain events in a way that i think could make sense to just your like average person picking up a book and they don't have to be Tolkien fans to quite understand it. You can just read these like epic passages and then like look at this meme and like get what's happening. Right. And I think it's definitely enriched my enjoyment of the Silmarillion. And there's just like some really funny stuff in there. But I I do think there's actual worth to reading through some of the silly uh, memes. Don't even let me. I've shared plenty with you. Um, Yeah, no, but you haven't read the Silmarillion. I think there's a lot of like, um memes in general are just like the whole word meme comes from like lemem shows like the same thing so whenever you see something that that clicks with a certain image or scene that you've seen before that's that's what makes it a meme and um 
I think it really helps, especially when you're talking about these kind of like heady, very legendary type stories, Mm -hmm. um, bringing them down to kind of a human level. That definitely makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And ultimately, I think whether or not you enjoy or despise the Silmarillion, it's kind of a crapshoot. I was in college a history major. So obviously, I love the story that is a (laughs) essentially a historical text in this universe. Right. That is pulled from other like primary sources. And I personally love the anthropological approach Tolkien takes to like uncovering these uh, cultures and these peoples and their histories. And while I love just the simple fairy tale, very plot driven, uh, like The Hobbit, um, I also really appreciate these deeper histories that provide a lot of context to the world he was creating. And um, I just think. You know, part of it might just be realizing it's not for you, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and maybe like, again, like I tried to read it several times and quit and it was like, it wasn't for me at that point in my life, but I've grown to like really appreciate the archaic language she uses and uh, like the multitude of uh, names and histories he throws at you. I, uh, you just kind of, you just kind of need to let it like wash over you. <laughs> and then uh, sort of try to find the literary themes he's trying to get at with these histories. Yeah, I think my biggest concern is like, I know because I live with you and you, you talk about these characters mm, definitely at least once a week, if not more. And I'm I'm pretty familiar with like a lot of the stories that I'm about to, to read. I know I like the stories. Like, I know I like the content of the history that is going to be told. Mm -hmm. What I'm most worried about is that I will shirk at the style it's told in um, and be desperate for, for like something a little more narrative and less. Yeah. And like I said, it gets more narrative as the story goes on. And as, like I said, we get these more relatable points of view. Yeah. We start off with God himself and then the Valar, then elves than men so it's like constantly getting closer to our level well we'll see because next week we will be covering the Ainu Lindale to chapter four of Thingol and Melian of the Silmarillion so if you have never read the Silmarillion before this is a great time to start I have definitely never uh that's not true I've tried to read it before and and really fallen asleep mm-hmm. within like two pages kind of stuff but yeah uh, this time I'm committed because we have a reading schedule that tells me <laughs> what to do every week. Um, uh, I'll try to help you along. And like I said, I think there reaches a point where if you can make it to that point, like kind of halfway through, you hit it. Uh, I think you can you write, you can write it out to the end. Yeah. Um, uh, well, here's to hoping if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on our Twitter at half as well pod. You can also find us on halfaswellpodcast.com, where we have our read-along schedule posted. And we're hoping, actually, at some point to get our podcasts onto YouTube as well. We're working on that currently, so hopefully this will just be available on all sorts of platforms. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well. Well.